episode three, Michael Macy, Young Offender. This book, Michael has so kindly given me four copies that are signed. The first person to subscribe, I don't know what can I do, Michael. What would you suggest? I would say the most liked comment, whoever puts puts a nice comment on and yeah, so whoever puts a nice comment on there, whatever comments gets the most likes, we'll get one of these signed and delivered by Michael himself. It's a good read. I've read a bit of it myself, not much of it, because I want to quiz him on it today. Is that okay with you, Michael? Yeah, mate, yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for having me on, mate. Well, thanks for coming. Well, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, so let's get that up. Let's get that in the open right now. So, without you supporting me or backing me the way you are, this podcast would not be happening. This T-shirt on my chest would not be here. So you've got to understand how grateful I am to you and the CIP project for helping me get to where I am now. Mm. You've sort of laid the foundations for me to carry on when I was in, the, in a place of the unknown. Mm. I was lost, nowhere to go. Mm. You popped up, showed me this path. I'm on this path, so I'm highly grateful to you, Michael, for what you and the CIP project have done for me. Mm. Thank you, Darren. And I just want to say on that, you know, like, thank you for trusting me, you know, because when you've grown up in the world we've grown up in, it's not easy. To, I, I struggle to trust people, but you trusted me and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. And, you know, I'll support anyone who is willing to change and has a message like yours, you know, and that's what really amazed me about you, Darren, is you had this horrific story, but you also had this desire to help you know, and you had this specific moment in the James English podcast, the first one, and this is where James is very good at interviewing, and he, he, he asked you at the end, how are you doing now, Darren? And you said, do you want me to be honest, James? And you was like, I'm fucked, I need, I need help. Yeah. And I remember <clears> that <throat> was the moment for me, I messaged James and said, I wanna help Darren, you know, um, and, and here we are, you know, so. Here we are, within a few weeks later, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got a, I've got a, that was the ghost that people just ignore that. <laughs> in the past two weeks, the things you, you have done for me and helped me progress has been more than what I've had in the last 12 months. Do you understand what I mean by that, Michael? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, yeah. I'm not bullshitting you, mate. The bottom line is since you've come into my life two weeks ago, the strides and the progress I've made, like the podcast, clothing line, the mental motivation that you've given me. It's all, it all amounts to more than what I've had in the last 12 months. Mm. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, um, thank you, mate. That means a lot. But I'm, I'm, I'm being sincere about that. I'm not just yeah. bullshitting you on it. I'm, re I'm really grateful for the opportunity yeah. you've given me. Yeah, and I feel it, mate, and I feel it. And you know, like, I just want to say, like, I'm, I'm no guru or expert, but I think you had all of this in you already. Yeah. I just sort of, pointed you here and there. Yeah, you've you know. guided me a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But, but you had bit. this message and all of this just waiting to come out, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think any credit really goes to you, mate, for surviving what you went through and now being at a place where you want to give back. For me, that's a fucking hero. So okay. I salute you for that. Well, mate. thanks for that, Michael. But we're here to interview you. Yeah. And I know you're singing my praises, which is fantastic. <laughs> I don't hardly hear them compliments. <laughs> yeah. But we're here to interview you. And I'm going to go straight to your book and I'm going to open up and we're going to go straight to chapter four. And the first school you went to was a 20 minute walk from your house, mm. which was in Ivy Bridge Estate. 
That's right, yeah. Would you want to start off from there? How old are you when you've gone to the school? Yeah, so I grew up on a council estate, Ivy Bridge Estate in Isleworth, and um, it, was a, it was a sort of difficult community. It was primarily, um, you know, poor kids, young black kids, young, some white kids, but primarily one thing we had in common, all, a lot of us had missing fathers, a lot of us parents had addiction problems, and primarily the male role models were the elder drug dealers, you know. So if our fathers were missing, that's who we turned to. We idolised them, we sought out guidance from them. So in a lot of ways, Darren, it was like the blind leading the blind, you know. And you know, I, I, my dad left before I was one. My dad was a heroin addict. Unfortunately, he died last year from heroin addiction. Um, and my mum come from a gypsy background and she was an alcoholic. She's sober today, but she was an alcoholic up until the age of, I was 18. Well, that's, that sort of gives us an insight into your upbringing. Mm, yeah. Having parents with addictions and a drink problem. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was tough, mate, you know, because um, I sort of made this decision at a young age that the people closest to you normally let you down and normally the people that you're meant to be able to love and trust, you can't trust. You know, and I remember for me, I had a few episodes of uh, neglect and stuff like that, but the real, the real moment that really shut my door on any faith in humanity in the world was when I was sexually abused by my uncle, when I was, I was about four or five years old. And that... So you've been sexually abused as a child? Yeah, I was. Is yeah. that in this book? It is, mate, yeah. I yeah. was... How was it to reopen them wounds and put it onto paper? How emotional was it? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest with you, mate. I could sit here and talk about it to you about it, and I talked to it to therapists and in AA meetings, you know, lots. But when you actually write it down on a bit of paper, I feel emotional even talking about it now. I can see it. Yeah, you you think fuck that little boy was me. Yeah. You know, and, um, and my head was ruined, mate. You know, I went back to my publisher's Pam McMillan because I was going to write the book myself. And I said, I can't do this. I can't, I it's can't, hard. I can't do this. My head is ruined. And I remember my wife at the time when I was trying to write it, she said I'd come back in the living room and I'd be staring at the TV screen, but I'd be like in a different world. And she, I was like, revisited this trauma and then found it very hard to get out of it. Right. So that's when I recruited the help of a ghostwriter um, yeah. and just said, you know, I need some help writing these difficult moments of my life. Just touching on the sexual, the sexual abuse towards yourself, how did you, when did you reveal it? Or when was it revealed that you'd been abused? Was it in your mind years or did it take a lot of time for you to build up the the bravery and the strength to say, look, this has happened to me. Hmm. When a, did that happen? This is a great question, Darren. And I, I very rarely get asked this question, but it's such an important question because I carried the shame of my sexual abuse right up until in my sort of late 20s. Adults? Adult, yeah. Like I was too ashamed to admit that I was uh, sexually abused by a man. You know, I made it mean that like I was weak or I was like homosexual or like, not that there's anything wrong with being gay, but I made it mean all these things about me. It was like, I carried the shame for something he done to me when I was a helpless child. Mm, yeah. 
<clears throat> and I was too ashamed to admit it. And I think this is one of the biggest things that I had to um, overcome. Overcome was admitting to myself that's what happened. Yeah. And then the har the hardest part, and probably for me the most traumatic part, was admitting it to family, who instantly told me you're full of shit. It didn't happen. And that was even harder when you go to when you're not believed when they don't believe you. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was for me. It sent me right back into the trauma. I felt like I wasn't safe. I felt like the universe isn't a friendly place. You can't trust anyone. Yeah, it was well, tough. Well, what skills, what, what eventually made you, you know, accumulate the strength to say, bang, this is what's gone on? What, what was that process like? Was it just one day I've had enough, wham? Or was you building yourself up to reveal, like a big reveal? Yeah, it was, it, it was funny because I got, I've been sober from alcohol and drugs for almost 13 years now. And um, I'd never opened up to anyone about the sexual abuse, even until I was about four years sober. And I had a sort of mentor who was an old Irish man, lovely, gentle Irish man. You could really trust him, but I was even too afraid to admit it to him. And it was one of these things where I just said to him, listen, I think something might have happened when I was a kid. And he said, well, just tell me a little bit about it. And I told him, I painted a picture of one episode. And he was like, it sounds, Michael, unfortunately, like you, there was sexual abuse there. And straight away, I go into shame. Like, but the shame was never mine to carry. The shame was his. Yeah, it was the monsters. It was him yeah. who should be ashamed. Mm. But he done it to me in a way where he swore me to secrecy. He said, if you... Uh, tell anyone no one will believe you and if I get in trouble I'm coming back for you and he was from uh, Northern Ireland he was my uncle and he was from Northern Ireland and he would often make out he had links to the IRA which I don't think were true but that but, was how he sort of silenced me yeah and and intimidated it's me. very intimidating yeah and threatened with yeah paramilitary forces is very intimidating yeah that's it yeah um, and yeah, mate, it was, it, as a young kid, I, I, that was when I shut the door on the world. I was like, you know. Well, I, through that process there, I picked up on the fact that you've had a drug addiction and an alcohol addiction. Mm. Am I right to suggest that these addictions came on the back of the abuse to cover it over, to cloud it out your brain sort of thing, mm. or? Yeah, yeah, definitely, Darren. That's exactly what it was, mate. Yeah. You know, it was, my mind would only really stop talking and yapping away when I had a drink or a drug or and it would sort of it would silence it enough but occasionally what would happen is it would all abrupt as well so I could be on a night out and I suddenly just get really aggressive like I want to have a fight or something like that and what would normally set me off was like an authority figure yeah so if I saw like <coughs> a bully a big bloke beating up a little bloke what I saw was my uncle in him. And I was like, I'm gonna fucking show you now. Yeah. And if it was like, you know, even I used to see that in police, you know, it's sad to say, but police would get the brunt of my aggression towards my uncle. Anyone who was like an authority figure who was preying on someone weaker than them, they were the ones who normally got all my anger. What drugs was it? What in drugs the, did you turn to? Yeah, in, in the beginning, it was the typical stuff, smoking a bit of weed, yeah. drinking, you know, well, they call them, they call them, they call them 
gate openers or something. Yeah, you? gateway drugs. Gateway drugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was it. It was a gateway drug for me, you know. And I was, I was, and I tried other stuff. I tried a bit of crack and heroin when I was, you know, really young. But I never really. The thing for me was weed and alcohol. But then, it did progress to crack cocaine and heroin. You know, when I got released from prison, the second time, it was an epidemic in the late 90s. Everyone was selling crack and heroin. No one was really. Uh, doing armed robberies anymore yeah. and I started selling drugs but I was a terrible drug dealer. Well that's what you went to prison for isn't it? Armed robberies? Yeah well actually you know um, armed robbery possession of an imitation firearm was my first offence when I was 15. I didn't actually go to prison for that so when I went to court the, my solicitor brought up all my case files and I was hospitalised a lot as a child and my solicitor said look Look at this kid's life. I was on the at-risk register. I had like professional intervention all the time because of all the abuse I'd experienced. I'd been hospitalised. It was like this kid's had a traumatic childhood. What are we going to benefit by locking him up? He needs help. Yeah. And so they threw everything at me. You know, uh, you know all these community, community orders, service, service, all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was a few weeks after that. After that court case finished, we went out on a night out and, you know, we got into an altercation with some rugby fans where we grew up. Our council estate was right next to Twickenham Rugby Stadium. And um, often you'd get loads of sort of wealthy white people, families, who'd rock up and they'd get drunk and they'd get aggressive. And it was on one night, a friend of mine, someone racially abused him, called him, called him a racial word. and a mass fight kicked off and it ended up in um, in this rugby fan getting stabbed in the, in the in the face and throat about 20 times and um, and that was what I eventually first went to prison for you know I went to the police station and I refused to I went no comment because I refused to grass on my mate and you know it was well there's a lot of that these days isn't there there yeah lads sticking to the line not grassing on him and not snitching on him and not snitching on him and getting themselves four years. And the lad who they've protected doesn't even send them a letter. Yeah. The lad who they've protected doesn't even, he's non-existent when they get out. Do you yeah. understand what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So, although it's loyal as a man to not snitch, and although you get a lot of respect off the rats within your community for not snitching, I'm not going to say snitching's the right thing to do. And I'm not going to say snitching's not the right thing to do neither but what i'm saying is if you're prepared to go into crime and go and sit and do five years for someone that doesn't care about you mm. i'd say you're pretty fucking stupid mate yeah not you personally yeah yeah but i know I agree, of loads of lads in the teenage years the youthful years think it's a big man thing to keep the mouth shut mm. and just go in the prison and just ride the jail and get out and don't get nothing at the end of it all you're doing is wrecking your life yeah. I'm not trying to say be a snitch or I'm not trying to mm. say whatever. What I'm saying is use your brain, understand who's there for a positive reason and who's using you. Mm. And that's, you touched on this in your first podcast with Harley. And that's why I, I love it because I don't think we talk about grooming enough. You know, you spoke about grooming and I was like, that's what it is. You know, there's... It's grooming? Yeah. Whether, whether, whether you like it or not. If you've got an older person 
looking at a younger person thinking I can use him to my advantage and then using methods to manipulate this young person to work the way he wants to. Mm. That is grooming. Mm. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it for sex, whether you're doing it for drugs, whether you're doing it to go on robberies, mm. it's grooming. Mm. And that Simple was as that. one of the things you said was it's happening to girls as well. Girls massively. Girls are getting groomed in for sexual exploitation well, as well. It, it, well, look, in the city of Liverpool, it's, I don't know what it's like further afield, but I can imagine any rough inner city has got the same problem as Liverpool. And what you're getting in these cities, Michael, is um, naive 13, 14-year-old girls that look 17 or 18-year-old. Mm. And they're naive. They're acting like adults, but they're not adults. Mm. Now, these kids are beautiful. The lovely young girls yeah. you can tell they're gonna grow up to be powerful women yeah. if they were left alone they're not left alone now yeah. you've got the little horrible drug dealers who are 21 on your estate looking at your 14 year old daughters now thinking she's gonna be boss when she's 16 here yeah. or she's gonna be powerful here when she's 18 i need to be moving to her now before any other rat gets it yeah. and don't tell me that doesn't that that's not how it works because yeah. that's how it works yeah. Years ago when we were kids, Michael, we're out, I know what you're into, I'm going on a bit. No, great. But years ago, when, years ago when we were teenagers, mate, I'm not saying this, you know, it was the norm. Mm. I'd be in a car, I'd be 15, my mates would be 19, 20, and they'd do this religiously every dinner time. They'd go to the local all-girls school at lunchtime, park up, smoking weed, paving off the schoolgirls who were wearing school socks. I'm sitting in the car, I'm not really sure, I'm just going with the flow with my elders. Mm. But when you look back on it, that's nonsense. Yeah. That is perverting. Mm. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. And that's been going on for over 20 years, only mm. now. Yeah. It's not, they're not going to the school to pick them up. Mm. They're going to the local park. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to the local, you know, the local area where the girls frequent a lot. Mm. They're pulling up in the drug dealer's car, the S3s, mm. the little watches on. How oh, are you, love? You all right? Bum, bum, bum. Throw a little bit of money at them. Before you know it, they, them girls want that man to be the boyfriend. Yeah. Most of these girls have got father figures missing. So when they've got this older man coming in, acting responsible, and I want to look after you, that girl mentally locks on, thinking it's a father figure. Mm. Yeah. And that's what's going on. Yeah. And there's not enough people talking about this, Darren. Yeah. You know, these young girls who don't have their fathers yeah. often get into these destructive relationships and then they think, this is normal. This is what relationships yeah, are like. Yeah. They're meant to be aggressive and but abusive. That's what I mean. So the first relationship these young girls are getting into are with a rat that haven't got the good intentions for this mm. beautiful young girl. They haven't mm. got no good intentions. They just want her because she's beautiful and the, the next drug dealer's talking about her. Yeah. They'll get her, they'll get them with them. Now that's the first ever relationship this girl's had, as you were saying then. And the younger they are, the faster they fall in love because mm. they're not sensible just yet. They're not mature. Exactly, so we call it puppy love, basically. So these girls all of a sudden have got this puppy love for this man, mm-hmm. and this man is just abusing them. And he'll use and abuse them till the girl's about 23 and kick them out. Yeah. And she's mentally destroyed, finished, yeah. probably got a coke addiction. Yeah. The same female will end up selling a body yeah. to live the lifestyle this drug dealer give her and it's no longer existing because he's fucked off with another 16 year old yeah. that's what they do yeah. I, I anyway i'll shut up on it <laughs> no mate but it's great because i think this is what the young women need to hear they, like need, they, they need to be aware yeah. of the pitfalls of going with a rat yeah. basically they don't love you 
They don't they love don't, you. It's They're none there of to that. use you. You're just a piece of, yeah. you know. And, and, and if you're 21 and your boyfriend's 40, you're a trophy. Mm-hmm. Your boyfriend who's 40 has probably got a woman who he's been with for 10 years. Mm. He's probably got kids around the corner that you're not even aware about. Mm. Probably takes you out every Saturday, puts you on the coat, mm. bangs you and sends you home on a Sunday. Mm. Yeah. That's not a loving relationship. This is that it, is yeah. being used and groomed for whatever he's grooming you for. Mm. And I think the important thing on this is because I've spoken to girls who've been in that sort of system. So have I, mate. And the important thing to look out for, which these girls who I've met who have out the other side of it, is that if during sex it's aggressive, it's rough, it's intimidating, it's humiliating, if there's any domestic abuse, these are all the signs that it's grooming, that actually this is not normal, and that is like a red flag, I need to be getting away from this. So if you've got a nice 18 year old girl, she's just started sniffing coke, going out on a Friday with her older mates. She's got this man who's 37, 38, locking onto her, spoiling her, pair of shoes, do you want to come for a scram before he knows he's in your knickers? This, that's the process. Mm. Right now, if this man is getting into your knickers and treating you like you're a porn star, trust me, he's abusing you. If this man's taking you to bed and making love to you, that's not hurting you. That's not abusing your body. It's real. Mm. So basically, girls, if you're going to get a man and the man's treating you like you're a porn star, he's abusing you. Mm. It's as simple as that. Mm. If you've got a man who's cherishing everything you do and promoting you and bigging you up and getting your mind strong instead of weakening it, that's the man you need. Yeah. And the problem with that, Darren, is that some of these girls, when they've had that all their life and then they meet a nice bloke, they're like, oh, I don't know how to do this because every guy I've had up until now is, has been a rough, has, has been, uh, been, has a been rough, aggressive. Yeah, it's been a not bad. And it's treating like, me like this. So when this girl meets someone, say like who's decent, me. Yeah. <laughs> so say this right. girl meets someone like me, and I'm all kind, and I'm doing the old school man stuff, opening doors. Are you all right? Do you need to go here? The romantic stuff. What's missing in today's thing? Mm. That's the type of man you want. You want the man that's going to respect you. Mm. You want the man that. If he's got £10 in his pocket, that's all he's got and you need it to get to work, he's going to give you it. That's mm. the man you want. So you don't want the man that's saying, oh, fuck off, get the bus. Because mm. that's what half of these drug yeah. dealers do to the girls. Yeah. You see half of these girls coming home on the Sunday morning, walking out of these houses like that. Yeah. They're not even getting dropped off. Yeah. They're not even getting a lift home. They're just getting dealt with, kicked out. And mm. that's how much lack of respect there is for the female within our communities. It's true. And it's so sad. And that's why I think, especially... It, other men watching this, young men, listening to you, how you would treat a woman, that's how change will happen. Yeah. Change will happen when they see elder men like us saying, no, that is not the way you treat women. Yeah. That's, you're not strong. Actually, you're not even cool. Actually, that's, that's the weak it's way. It's the weakness, yeah. yeah, if, yeah. You, if, you, if you're getting up of a morning, fuming, giving your beard abuse, screaming at your ma, you're just picking on women. Yeah. You're picking on women. In my books 20 years ago, if you hit a woman, you was a nonce. It's more relevant now. It seems the in thing now. Mm. You know, you've got girls battering boys, boys battering girls. Some girls are just as bad as boys. But that's yeah. only off the parenting yeah. and how previous boyfriends have treated them. Yeah. And I want to say, because we're sort of giving the guys a hammer in here, you know, a lot of the guys are just lacking leadership and male yeah. role models. Yeah. That's what we're lacking. Exactly. And that's why... When I heard your message and your story, I was like, I am going to help you because yeah. you can 
save lives. You know, what a lot of people forget is that 75% uh, of offenders re-offend in the first nine years. Yeah. One in five murders in the UK is committed by an ex-offender. So I can save someone's life by helping an ex-offender take the right path in life. That's right, yeah. You know, that's and it's like, that's what we need more of. You know, we need more men who've walked down that path to show the way to other men, you know? It's not, it's not bad to be a man who can cry. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But every man within them have got confidence mm. to begin with. It's the male, it's how we are. Mm. It's the male strength, isn't it? Mm. But it can be beat out of you mm -hmm. very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And it can be beat out of you by the people you let into your circle. Mm. And, it, and most of the people we let into our circles are a female. And the most person that gets close to any man is a female. And don't be thinking that every female is going to promote you and help you. Because some females can make you or break you. Yeah. And what you're seeing out there now, the majority try to break you. Well, I mean... I don't mean... I mean, like, from where I'm from, the majority Right well, yeah, break, yeah, okay, yeah, your experience. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah my experience. Because yeah. the majority, or the, the most girls I go near, have been damaged. Mm. I don't know why I attract that sort of female, mm. but they've had a rat, mm. a disgusting rat, mm. with them for a couple of years. And you can see the damage that rat's done to them. Mm. The girl's full of insecurities. Mm. The girl doesn't know whether you're lying or telling the truth. And that's hard to deal with. Yeah. You know, for someone like a man going into a relationship with one of these girls. Mm. It's hard to deal with, yeah. but it's the same on the other end. Mate, same it with is, the girls yeah. to the men. Yeah, and I've said it. I said it to you before, didn't I? I said when we was talking on the phone because of the sexual abuse that happened to me when I did meet my wife and I was having these lovely moments with her. Yeah, I was like, I feel terrified. I feel terrified you're going to hurt me. Exactly. So it works both ways it as well. Your, you know, my your. wife was like, why, in these moments where we're watching a film and it's all nice, do you you're like itching to get up and go? And it's because, growing up, anyone who I loved hurt me. And I, so here we are, years later, I've got someone who loves me, and it's like, can I trust you enough that you're not going to hurt me like everyone else does? Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm on the same sort of page as you, basically. I can't yeah. trust no one. Yeah. It's like that day you rang me, and I've just popped up down here. <laughs> I do that all the time, but yeah. that's just out of character. Yeah. I do it all the time, but it's yeah. out of character. Do you understand what I mean yeah, by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get right, it, We'll come back to the CPI project in a minute because I want to talk a bit more of that because it's making sure. an impact for a lot of men. And, you know, we're men and mm. we know what men suffer. It's mm. not, you know, you haven't got to be... Um, you haven't got to be... Um, how can I put it? You're not feminine. You're not feminine if you cry as a man. Mm. You know, you've got to release it. Mm. And if you can't... It, you're a strong man if you can cry, to be honest with you. Mm. It takes a lot to just let your tears flow, you know, as a man. Mm. You know, your pride and mm. this match and all this. Yeah. I automatically trust a man more if he's willing to... If I see a man cry, I automatically I feel a lot closer to him. Straight away, I'm like... Because he's not ashamed, to be he's honest. He's not ashamed. I can trust him. Yeah. You know, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Right, so in instead of going through every chapter in your book, mm. I'm going to jump to chapter 19. Yeah, sure. And chapter 19 starts with this. That second of freedom set the tone. For then on, I was up to my old tricks. Yeah, this is this is this is. It's so funny that you've randomly picked this because this is a pivotal moment in my life. Yeah. You know, I came out of prison the first time, 
and I really was like, I don't want to go back to that place. But I went to job interviews, and when you have a job interview, I had an armed robbery and possession of firearms charge. You can't lie, because they'll see it on yeah, your record, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm honest about it, and you get no, no. Doors slammed in your face, the answer's no. Sorry, you're not right for us. And my last chance saloon, my last option was like, if I can't get any job, I'm gonna join the military. And so I went to the military careers office in, uh, I think it was in Covent Garden at the time. It might still be there, I'm not sure. And I went in there and I was honest from the moment I went in there, Darren. I said, look, I wanna join. Uh, I've got a firearms charge and an armed robbery charge, but I'm willing to, I'm changed man. I don't wanna go back to crime. As I said, I don't mind being put in a unit on the front line, like a disposable force, cannon fodder. Just give me any job. I just don't wanna go back to the crime. And they basically said, sorry, mate, we can't, we can't, we can't give you a job. because you've How, got how old was you when you'd done that? I would have been probably about not long before my 17th birthday. Right. Yeah. Well, I was 17 when I went into the same type of office in Liverpool. Okay. I just got out of prison after finishing 15 months detained for yeah. bottling someone. Yeah. Um, I went straight within months. I've always had that military mindset. Mm. I've always had that you know, solitary way of working my head and that. I've always liked that structure through the prison I've done. Mm -hmm. It's more, it's like a, it's like sort of like an army sort of setup, mm -hmm. you know, like a barrack setup, that mm -hmm. camaraderie. Mm -hmm. So I've got out, I've went near. Honest like you, bum bum bum, I've just finished the, as soon as the air of a criminal conviction, you're out of, you're out the picture. Mm -hmm. So what you've got now in the country, you've probably got thousands of lads that would enter the British army but they're getting stopped because they committed an offence when they were 14. They're mm. now 21, they haven't committed another offence, but that offence is still damaging their prospects. Mm. Now, just imagine, because see most of the lads on the estates, Michael, they're not shit. They're not pieces of shit on your shoe. Mm. They've just not got the opportunities to, to like, progress in life, just like me. Mm. Now, half of these kids I know have been and tried to enroll into the army, mm -hmm. structure, routine, people that relate to you, like a family setup, mm. And that's what's missing to most of these lads on these estates now. Yeah, I agree. They're growing up without mums or dads. If, if they were placed in the army at the age of 16 instead of a prison, mm. they'd be a different man by 21. Yeah, completely agree. And if the government started opening their eyes and started bringing this national enrolment to the army like they used to years ago. I forgot what it was called. I think it was National Service, I think. National like Service. Yeah. If they brought that back in, all these thousands of 18-year-old kids stuck on the streets after school where they've got no work, they'll enrol straight into the army, they'll travel the world. If they survive it, if they get sent out to war and they come back, when they leave the army, they're coming out with money, pension, driving licence and an abundance of qualifications that will help them in other areas of employment. At the moment, we're just leaving them all on the streets, and if, if they don't adapt on the streets properly with, with a legal mindset, they end up in prison by the time they're 21, mm. and it's becoming more frequent and more relevant. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So you went to the army base? Yeah, so I went. And you refused you on the back of your previous convictions? That was it, yeah. And where did that take you? I spiraled, Darren. You know, that was like my last option. Like mean, like if it, right, if, if this if doesn't happen, I've just this, got to go sick. If this don't happen, I've, I've no other option. Yeah. And I left there and I was still stuck in this macho mindset back then, but I was choked up. 
I was like, I could have cried. Yeah. I think if I didn't have so much pride. But you know the then, importance. You knew the importance of that decision he's just made on your. Because they've made a decision on your life. Whether mm. you made a decision to go mm. and apply for this to change your life, but then you've got an official mm. just shutting you down. Mm. Get and, and, and that was it. It was it was this hopelessness of my situation that even though I wanted to avoid that way of life, the world had almost pushed me back there. Yeah. It was like I'd really tried to not go back, and it was like, and I went back to my estate and. You know, some of the older kids were like, yeah, mate, just take a, take a load of that weed and just sell it. Give me the money when you sold it. And it was like, here I am. I'm back on the street corner again, drinking, taking drugs. And, you know, shortly after, went back to prison. You know, and, that, and that's the sadness of it, is that I'm one man. So you imagine how many kids that's happened to across the UK. You know what, though, Michael? The mindset you had to go to the army, I don't want this life, I don't want this, I want to change my life. Thousands of us have done it. Mm. Thousands and thousands and thousands of us people have done it mm. and been knocked back at the last hurdle. Mm. You know, when we really want to change, when we really want to do something with our life, mm. we're knocked back. Mm. And that knockback there is what pushes you straight into the criminal mindset because you've got no other, you can't eat, you can't, everyone's dressing nice. It's mm. all that materialistic mm. mindset kicks in, yeah. doesn't it? It did for me, it made me definitely feel like there was a them and us. Yeah. Like it was a rejection. It was like, no, you don't belong here. Get back to your poor community yeah, yeah. council estate. You belong with them lot, the drug addicts, the dealers, the criminals. And sort of you develop this thing of like, no, this is who I am. This is my identity. I'm a crook, I'm a yeah. criminal, mm. you know, and it's them and us. And, and naturally when, with that mindset, prison is part of it. You just accept. Yeah, this is what we do. We, we commit crime and go to prison. It's part and parcel of our career, basically. Yeah, everyone was doing it. All the men in our community was doing it. Even the fathers who, absent fathers, if you did have a dad, the likelihood is he was in Nick. Yeah. If, if you didn't, he was just off taking drugs somewhere. And that was it. It was like these young group of men who were just needed mentorship and guidance, you know? Well, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of men that need, um, there's a lot of boys that need men to guide them. Like CIP, give us, give yeah. us an overall picture of, of what it is. What is it? Yeah. What, is, what is CIP? Um, or is it PIC? CIP. Oh, change is possible. Change is possible, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. CIP is the abbreviation of change it, is yeah. possible, yeah? It's a bit of a mouthful, change is possible, but I really wanted to, I mean, that's what, my story and, and my life, that's the message I wanted to convey, because growing up, I grew up in a community where there wasn't any one who had actually turned it around and, and yeah. really done it legally, like yeah. actually Proper. set up a business, was making legal money, was paying his taxes. He didn't have his fingers in any other pies. You he see it all the time, don't you, Michael? Yeah, you do. You, 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 you get these people proclaiming, I'm a reformed character, yeah. but they're living on the fringes of the crime. Yeah. Still and they've still got fingers in their pies. Yeah. And I was like, I want to be a loyal husband, a good father, and a law-abiding citizen, and, and demonstrate that it's possible and so, you know, I started my work in prisons. I do a lot of voluntary work in prisons. I have done for 13 years. And over 13 years, you, you see what needs to change and you see, you know, how things can be improved. And it got to a point back in 2018 where I realized if I wanted to make real change and get funding, I needed to set up an organization because I was just going in willy nilly on my, on my own. Yeah. But what I've learned is with that, Darren, 
having set up an organization and registered myself on the dynamic purchasing system, which is a government system where companies like mine, the CIP project, can bid for work. I've gone through all of that and you realize even when you go to that stage, still doors are in your face. Yeah. You know, and why is that, you think? Well, I think for some, it's a mindset problem. So often when I rock up to a prison and I'm an ex-armed robber and I'm saying I can help and, uh, and I'm going to do it for free, some people look at you with suspicion. Why is he coming here doing it for free? He's obviously trying to bring drugs in or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they always put that class They can't get their head around it. Yeah. Like, you know, um, and then the other bit is just the prison system is outdated. You know, yeah, completely. Like it's completely outdated. It needs you know, reforming from top to bottom. It needs complete reforming. And, and, and when you look at, um, in any other trade, it was like, if you wanted to be a professional footballer, yeah, you'd go and seek the advice of an ex-professional footballer yeah. and say, listen, mate, how did you do it? And when this happened, what did you do? But right now, we've got people in prisons trying to help prisoners rehabilitate, but they've never been to prison and they've got no life experience. So my argument is, is you should have people who've rehabilitated themselves, get them to talk to the kids about how they're going to do it. Yeah. And how do you do that? You help other people rehabilitate. This is what we're doing yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. You know, you help each other, you know, and I That's think... That's what it's about, yeah. We're so quick to tear each other down. He done this, he's this, and you judge people. And it's like, look, let's all come together because if we come together... That's where our strength is. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're stronger together. And we've spoke about that a lot, you yeah. know, about having the right people around you. and It's the network of it, people it, around it, you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, mate. And I think <clears throat> all we need is more of us, more young men who've been through the system, who found a way out. Now let's go back to schools, colleges and prisons and help the youth. And that's what it should be. And that's the whole point of choose a life, not a knife, mm. the CIP project. Mm. And there's other, there's other knife initiatives up and down the country mm. that, yeah. that are implicating big, but we're not getting nowhere because he's doing tremendous work in that little pocket. He's doing tremendous work in that little pocket. Mm. He's doing it there, he's doing it there, she's doing it down there, whatever. Mm. If all them pockets were put together, you'd be affecting masses really, but... Yeah. Well, you know, there's... I moan about the government sometimes, but there is actually some good people in the government. You know, I was invited into the Houses of Parliament earlier this year, and I've been very close to a lady called Dame Carol Black, who's worked in the Home Office. And so that's the way we're going to bring about change, is people like me going in and speaking With to these... With people like Yeah, because I sat, I sat in the Houses of Parliament, I spoke to some MPs, and it amazed me that they didn't know that most inmates have been neglected, physically or sexually abused or from an underprivileged background. Like if you look All at the statistics, that's the most underprivileged, abused, neglected members of our society. All of them end up in prison. Yeah. You know, and our solution for them is to lock them up for 23 hours a day. You think how inhumane that is? You think I if, know. You, if you locked a dog up in a cage, you'd be jailed for 23 hours a day. You'd the, be jailed. An animal goes crazy. Yeah. You know, just for one day. You know, and we do it for, I mean, in coronavirus lockdown, it was 23 and a half hours a day. It's still that now, mate. In the know? majority of prisons up and down the land, they've got no staff because of the coronavirus. This and when it. they haven't got a certain amount of staff on the wing, they don't open the doors. Yeah. And that's how, that's how, um, that's how the black tie or the public state who run the prisons mm -hmm. have been um, pressuring the government to put more dough into the public sector 
So what the public sector are doing in their prisons is saying we haven't got enough staff because you won't give us the money to buy them. Yeah. And that leaves all the prisoners locked up yeah. and causes loads of things, suicide, confrontations, violence. Yeah. Whereas in the private sector, they've got staff in abundance. Your door's never locked in a private jail yeah. because there's no staff. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in the public state, your door's always locked because there's no staff. Mm. When the staff are sat in the office downstairs, mm. they just yeah. want to force the government into putting more money back into the public sector instead of the private sector. Yeah. So the prisoners are the pawn in that war begin against um, the POA, the Prisoners Officers Association, and the governments. Mm. They're at loggerheads with each other, and the mm. people that are suffering are the prisoners that are in the public sector prisons. Mm. The prisoners that are in the private sector prisons, they get looked after. Mm. They can re rehabilitate themselves. Some are a bit more violent, but the amount of money the private sector is getting for prisoners well outweighs what the POA is getting for prisoners mm. completely. I agree with what you're saying, and I think it, it's, it's a tricky one because if, if it goes to the private sector and then it technically, in, in many ways, becomes a business like it is in America, you know, okay, well... In any business, you've got to keep your customers happy. You've got to keep your customers coming in. Exactly. What issues would I have to come to see, to come to your company? No issues. No issues at no all? No issues at all. So no. what, what is the process then for the CIP project? What just, is it? Just go to our website, look at our next available workshop dates. So, so if I'm a man and I'm feeling insecure, not confident, um, can't trust me girlfriend, all them psychological little things. Is that what you address? 100%, all of that stuff, all of that stuff. And what we do is create a safe place of men where we can get honest and be vulnerable. And I tell you what, Darren, it never amazes me how quickly it happens with mixed groups. You know, like our last workshop, we had an ex-paratrooper, ex-convict, police officer, but none of that mattered. They didn't look at job titles. They looked at, you're another man and I'm another man. Yeah. And here we are supporting each other. And, that's what it's, and it's like, as men, we're crying out for this. Yeah. We're crying out for this connection with other men, healthy, safe connection. Not that bullshit connection when you're in the pub and you're like, wee, none of that. Like actually sitting eyeball to eyeball with a man and saying, all of you is welcome. Being open, honest about you. Yeah, and yeah. But what do you expect in return? Say, say you do, Say an individual does come to you for help mm -hmm. and you do offer them the help. Mm -hmm. What do you expect in return? Nothing. Nothing at all? Nothing at all, no. If you come and you get nothing from the workshop, that's okay. If you come and it changes your life and you want to shout about it from the rooftop, that's okay as well. But also if you come and you don't want to tell anyone you even came, that's okay as well. And that's the important is it, part is, it, is, it, is, is, it, is the confidentiality a big thing on this? It is, yeah. And that's what we start our workshops with, is that we have a confidentiality agreement. What you see here, who you see here, let it stay here. You know, and it's an important what thing. What goes on in this room stays it, in this room. It stays here, yeah. And this isn't about money or fame. And that's what I see a lot of people out there trying to do good just to get fame or yeah, money. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this in prisons for 13 years with no money, and no prisoner can follow you on Instagram and like your posts. They're locked in a cell, yeah. you know. And I think that's where it needs to change is, is just give back and don't have any investment in what's in it for you. Just help. Concentrate on the life form. 
Yeah, because good karma, I mean, we spoke about karma before. It comes back round. It does, yeah. The karma comes back round. It's all, it's all, about, the, it's all about the energy, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Now, on my, on my, on, on my, when I'm interviewing, I ask two questions. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's coming. Mm -hmm. I just spit them out at you. <laughs> so you're probably sitting there a little bit worried, thinking, oh, shit, what's coming next? <laughs> Basically, what's the best chapter in your book? Crikey, well, I think... What's the best and why? For me, it would, it would have to be the final chapter. Which is chapter... Crikey, it's embarrassing. I don't even know how many chapters there are. I think it's 33. I think it's 33. 33, there you go. For me, for me, it would be the final chapter because, you know, it demonstrates... 35. 35, that the number, number five. five. There again, there yeah. you go. Right number in. five. <laughs> so this is your best chapter? Yeah, I'd say so. Once upon a time, I was the kid the police officers in Richmond and Isleworth most wanted to see banged up for good. More than a decade later, some of those same officers still patrol the streets and around my estate agency. Yeah. Darren, so, I'm, but, I'm so glad you've asked this because this is a part of the story. In all the interviews I've done, news channels, everything, n many people don't touch on this. But in 2014, I'd been volunteering in prisons for years, right? Yeah. Completely under the radar, unrecognised. But the, someone from one of the prisons wrote a letter to the Metropolitan Police, said, this kid needs some recognition. He's coming in here off his own back free of charge. So one, one day I got a letter in the post from the Met Police. No way. <laughs> saying we've got an awards ceremony for local community heroes and we'd like you to come along. And I thought it was a wind-up. <laughs> I thought someone's winding me up. Why would the old Bill want me to go? You know? Yeah. I still had this negative attachment to the police, even though I'd changed so much, you know? But on that before, just let me interrupt yeah. you there. Most of us grow up with that negative opinion of the police. Yeah, totally, yeah. But as you grow up and you mature, you, you come to terms with the fact that without police, there's no Liverpool City, there's no Manchester City, there's no London City. Mm. Because without the police in place, you're going to have drug dealers and gangbangers in place, and trust me, that's not the life we need in this country. Of course, yeah. We need police on the streets. Mm. We need police locking rapists up. Mm. That's the way it is. Mm. So for all you young kids that are hating on the police for protecting your house, give your head a wobble and have a think why they do it. Mm. I agree, mate, and I think they're not, the police aren't the enemy. The, kid, the, the adults who are grooming are young men and women. They're the enemy. Against the police. Yeah. I used yeah, to do it myself, the police are rats, hate yeah. the police, hate the police. Hate. I used to say that to the kids, yeah. and then the kids would yeah. throw stones at the police cars when they seen them. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a messy uh, mindset. I, I've had police officers, have read my book, I've had police officers on my workshops. Well, this is what I'm saying. There's so actually lovely police officers who actually really care. I know. You know, they're I know that, lovely. lad. It's the, same, it's the same with anyone in uniform. Yeah. It's the same with anyone in uniform. Mm. They all get painted with the same brush. Yeah. Now, nurses and that never really used to get painted with that brush, but mm. firemen and, and nurses are getting painted with that brush now. Mm. Yeah. Why? It's the uniform of the government. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Now, when people get past the uniforms of the government, whether that's a prison officer, a police officer, or whatever, you start to recognise there's an individual in that uniform, mm. and that individual's only turning up at that job to be paid and pay her bills and look after her family. Mm. Just because she's got a black and white uniform on doesn't mean it's the devil. Yeah. Do you understand what and, I mean? And also on that, some of these people get into that specific job to help people like yeah. us. They do. You know what I mean? Yeah, they do. They're like, I'll get in it to help 
the youth because they've experienced difficulties themselves. They do, yeah. But on, on the same hand, um, out of 12 policemen that join the force, eight probably want to help. Yeah. Make it a crime-free country, but the other four want to get into it to damage criminals and hurt criminals yeah. and, and be horrible towards criminals. Mm, yeah. And they're the bad ones that are putting shame on the other ones. That's it. And it works the same way as well. Yeah. The work, people would judge us. Well, they're ex-convicts. You know, they shouldn't be having a podcast. He shouldn't even have a book. And it's like, well, you know, rehabilitation whole has to play a part in yeah. all of this. And I think the, the more we can stop shaming and blaming each other and just come together. If we come together, we'd be so powerful. You know, when you think of all these movements against the coronavirus, Black Lives Matter, what do we all have in common? We all come from the lower parts of the community. Yeah, yeah. You imagine if we come together, how powerful we'd be. That's what I said. Change would Right happen. now, right now, I said this to someone this morning, right now, with what's going on in society, right now is not the time to fight. Right now is the time to unite. And that, that's very powerful because at the moment they've separated communities up and down the country and they've been doing it for the past 10 years. Mm. Whether you're black, white, whether you're Christian, Muslim, they've been out there deliberately putting things in place that disfranchises. So we're not solid. So we're not united. So we're not reading from the same page or drinking from the same cup. Mm. And that's why there's no strength within mm. the communities at the moment because we're all... Yeah deliberately pulled yeah. apart. Yeah, but that's a, it's, it's when, you, when you look into military tactics, Darren, right? One of the, one of the most renowned military tactics when they invade a country, uh, they, it's called divide and conquer. So first you establish who will fight, yeah. and then you create differences between them, and you separate them, and then you get them fighting each other. And, and while they're fighting each other, these are carrying on with the poison. We're winning. Yeah. Because now they're killing each other. We don't even need to shoot a weapon. Well, I've seen that loads of times in the cities, mate, like in, in Liverpool. You mightn't think this, but when a gang war erupts in any city, the police sit back and let it unfold. Mm. The only time they jump in is when someone's being shot dead. Why did they jump in at that time? It's because the person they've been trying to get for the past 10 years is going to jail for life. Mm. That's all they're interested in. Mm. They're not asked about how many kids suffer around that incident of crime. All they are interested in is getting him. And if it means it's okay, it's okay if he's going to kill two of his own, mm. as long as we get him. Mm. Yeah. So police in every city can stop these gang wars unfolding and going to the levels that they go to if they want it. They just don't, mm. because it's helping them. Mm. They're killing each other, they're solving our problem. And I don't even think it's them, the individual police officers. It's further up yeah. the chain. As, this, is what the this, down. this is what Look, if I'm your boss, mm. if I've got 100 employees under me and I'm telling them 100 employees, you need to behave in this way, otherwise you're gone. They're going to behave in that way. Yeah. So these police that are getting orders off the chief inspectors and all that from up there, all these on the front line, the knobheads, mm. without being rude and disrespectful to these policemen, they're complete fucking knobheads. Why? Because they haven't got the mentality of the old school. The new ones that are coming through, they're relating in a sense, like the, they know the people skills in a little way. Mm. The other ones haven't got none. Mm. I believe that there is a new generation of There's a new generation of policemen coming through. And I think who, change is going to happen yeah. here, you know, and, I, and that's what I think is great. I definitely see it. In the you can see the attitude in the new officers compared to the old officers. Yeah. I the mean, old officers was. Brutal, lock them up. 
Of course, yeah. The young yeah. officers are more, hang on, can we sort this without locking you up? Mm, yeah, this is it. Yeah. And, and, and that was demonstrated by the amount of police officers who read my book. Like, why would a police officer want to read about an ex-armed robber? It's unless, a good book. Unless they cared about seeing some change. But what I was going to say was, quickly, I'll finish Back that story. Back to the story. letter. Yeah, Back yeah, to yeah. the letter. The Met sent you a letter. Yeah. So I go, I decide I'm going to go to this award ceremony. But I don't tell anyone. I thought, if this is a wind-up, or if I'm just going there as a spare part, I don't want to go there and be embarrassed. You know, <laughs> so I'm not going to tell anyone. And I had this real sad moment when I arrived at the award ceremony and I saw my name as I'd been selected as a shortlister for one of these awards. Oh, so like there was six years up for this award? There was people shortlisted for awards and I looked around and everyone had their family and friends with them. There was local newspapers there and everything. And I was there on my own and I felt this real sadness. People were sitting there and anyway, I got, I got picked as, as being the local community safety hero. And I got presented this award. Well, by there you go, lah. Yeah. Well, is that not good for you? Does not. Yeah. Does that not put all the like the thirteen years that you went through to fucking get well, to where you want? Did that not like write and go somewhere now? Well, it was funny because when they when they called my name out and I went up and the chief superintendent gave me the award and you know I did have this moment on stage, Darren, like fucking hell. I have actually really changed. Like, look at me yeah. with the chief superintendent and he's patting me on the back, giving me an award. And that was one of them things. You know, often people often say, you can't see the change in yourself. Other people see it first. Exactly, yeah. And it was one of them moments of like, fuck, I must have changed. Look at, I'm up here, you know. And I remember I went home and my daughter Sienna was just born and I went and I kissed my wife on the forehead and it was like, wow, I, I've done it. I can't believe I've, I, I, I've changed I, my life. I think I think it's more to the point of you've been recognised for your change mm. than you've changed. Mm. You knew you'd changed. Yeah. But these people weren't appreciating the fact that you'd gone through what you'd gone through and changed. They mm. weren't accepted. That's like me now. No one believes, except for you probably, that I'm a changed individual, mm. that I will never return to crime mm. and I will do my utmost to stop other people going to crime. Mm. People can't embrace that fact that mm. Darren G has gone to prison, rehabilitated himself. Now get that point there clear. Rehabilitated himself. The prison never done it for me. All that's got to be done by yourself first and foremost. You've got to put it in your mind and start doing shit yourself. The mm. courses that get put in front of you, they help you maintain it. But it's all got to come from within, isn't it? Mm. Am I right? I think so, mate. And I think what I'd love to do, I know you're meant to be interviewing me, but I'd love to hit you with a question because what was that point of where you decided, okay, there's no help coming. If I want to do this, I've got to do it myself. Yeah. What was that point for you? Because that's what I think the youngsters need to hear. Like, when, when do you get to that stage? I've always been of the mindset that if you want something done, you do it yourself if you want it done properly. Now, what I changed on the back of a course called Sycamore Tree. You mentioned this to me, yeah, I remember. Now, it was this Sycamore Tree that um, powered home, drove home the angle from the victim's point of view. I'd never contemplated a victim's point of view. Mm. Fuck victims, it is what it is. Mm. But in that course, it makes you really come to terms with how a victim handles such incidences 
even a burglary, yeah. a burglary to a victim. You don't understand the damage it does to a victim, mm. but it's massive. And when you come to terms with, with the damage you're doing to good human beings, you start, it starts hitting home. Mm. You start questioning yourself. Mm. And I, I came to terms with me. What I started doing is going, this isn't me. I've never been like this. It's my environment that's made me like this. Mm. I can refer back to when I was a child and I was a lovely, decent kid. And then it's the environment that's changed me. Mm. So all you lads out there or girls who think that you're nothing and you don't account for anything, you've got to start referring to back of who you are, not what the environment's made you. If you're committing crime, it's your environment that's leading you down that line. And you're only going down that line because you haven't found yourself yet. If you find yourself, you won't even go down them lines. Mm. So you, so just to recap that, is when you saw it from the victim's point of view, yeah. it changed and it helped you see that actually, My actions, I do feel guilty, I do yeah. feel feelings, yeah, yeah. and actually I'm, I'm not this monster that I thought I was. Yeah, actually, yeah. I was a decent kid, but life chipped away at me, and Badly. I made bad choices. It was, it, was when I, it was when I was come to terms with the abuse. Mm. I've suffered abuse. Mm. And it was when I was come to terms with that abuse that mm -hmm. really made me mm. realise that I'm no fucking monster. Yeah. I'm no dirty little fucking rat like police mm. have made me out to be. Yeah. I'm me. I know I'm kind. I know I'm... You know what I mean? Mm. I know what type of man I am. Mm. It's just been covered over over the years where I've had to react. Mm. You know, when you get put into environments and you've just got to adapt to them environments. I was put into some of the worst environments and I had to adapt to them. Yeah. And it was the adaption that covered me the real me. Mm. It was me adapting to them environments and trying to fit in with them people mm. that was disguising the real me. Yeah. And over 20 years, I was well and truly disguised. But when I started peeling back and getting back to like the, I want answers to these questions mm. and I'm starting to dig myself out of this hole and mm. refer, I'm going down layers here now. Mm. I'm peeling layers off me like. Mm. And when mm. I got down to the bottom layer, it hit home. Yeah. It just hit home. Mm. What have you been doing? Mm. Are you, you going to live the rest of your life like this? Mm. Do you want to be in and out of jail? Do you want to be ending up on substances for the rest of your life? Mm. Do you want a family with kids who are secure? Or do you want to just be a scag rat sitting in a prison cell? Mm. Because that's the life I was leading. Mm. In and out of jail, in and out of jail, in and out of jail. Mm. So what people often say to me is about how do you change? And it's basically exactly what you're saying. I word it slightly differently. It's like, do the work. Do the work do on the yourself. Do the work on yourself. If you've, got, if you've got 10 layers of old wallpaper on it, strip it down strip and put a fresh set up. That's exactly it. You know, and I think a lot of people want to change the world. You can do that by changing yourself. You, you can't change nothing yeah. unless you can address yourself. 100%. You can't love no one unless you can love yourself. Yeah. And you can't hate no one unless you can hate yourself. Yeah. And we're all capable of it. Yeah. All of us have sat there and hated ourselves for what we've done to that woman or what we've yeah. done to that man. or We've all done it. It's about how you react to it and how you come out of it. Mm. Now, if someone puts you down and, and plays with your insecurities a bit, what are you going to do? Run out and go mad and have a drink and punch him and go to jail? Mm. All these things wouldn't happen if you'd address yourself, mm. love yourself, embrace mm. yourself, mm. start correcting how you speak to people, start mm. using your morals, mm -hmm. start helping the old woman across the road again like we used to when we were kids. Mm. That sort of behaviour mm. keeps you real. Mm. Yeah, and it's good for your soul.
right? You feel better about yourself. Exactly. Now, we've been on this for a long time, <laughs> Michael. Know, I'm not used to these long ones. <laughs> let's, let's, it's the third it. episode with the, <laughs> with the lovely Michael Macy, the man that's helped me, the man that's made this possible. You've got to understand what the CIP project does, not just for me, for other men right across the board. If you're struggling, you need help, you need guidance, you need advice. Get on to Michael Macy and the CIP project because he will help you. He's very sincere and I'm grateful for what he's done for me. We'll end that there. Thank you, Michael, for being a good interview. Thank you, mate. Ah, mate.